following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. At the turn of the century, the world's most distinguished astronomer was certain that there were canals on the planet Mars. Sir Percival Lowell, esteemed for his study of the solar system, uh, was basically having a particular fascination with the red planet, and when he heard that another astronomer had seen crisscrossing lines on the Martian surface, he spent the rest of his days toward the end of his life peering through his gigantic telescope in Arizona, studying the red planet and mapping all the canals that he saw. Interesting enough, Lowell's observations gained wide acceptance since he was so highly respected, he was at the top of his game. No one ever thought of differing with him or even trying to contradict him because he was the one who was at the top of his field. Interesting enough, what is strange about all the canals that he saw, and actually when I was in sixth grade, a globe that actually showed all the canals on Mars, but today we've had actually space probes circle the planet Mars and actually land on the planet Mars, and there are no canals on Mars. None. So the question that everybody kept asking is, how could Lowell have seen so much that wasn't there? And the answer is, we know that he now suffered from a rare eye disease, and that as he was studying the planet Mars through his telescope, he was actually seeing the bulging veins of his own eyeballs. And that's what we have, and and so many years of our understanding of the planet Mars. Now, the reason I share that with you is that when it comes to God's design for men, and God's design particularly for women, is what we have is every group that has some sort of voice today projects their own weaknesses, their own preferences, their own ideas about the role of men and the role of women upon women themselves, giving us a very distorted picture, just the same as Lowell gave us a very distorted picture as well. In fact, we project today our own fallenness upon the role and design that God had actually originally put together. The world of high fashion, women's movement, the lesbian movement, today's Gender confusion projecting its own ideas. The secular view of marriage, marriage failure today, all have made God's design for women and God's design for men more difficult for believers. Now, this is not accidental. This is intentional. In fact, uh, my illustration of that some years back, eminent theologian, contemporary scholar, and sociological expert, Cindy Lauper, the orange-headed singer, said in an interview that the three biggest oppressors of women are, number one, government, number two, the family, and number three, the church, which to me I find interesting about her statements. Unknowingly, Lopper shows whose side she's on by criticizing all three God-ordained institutions. Now, interesting, when you're speaking about women in particular, uh, when you're born again, you need to understand, and it is true, that God gives us a love for His Word. He puts His Word in our hearts. He gives us a desire to obey His Word. And interesting, as Christians, you need to understand that the design of God for women is not merely cultural. 
It is not political, it is not sociological, and it is not a sexist issue. It is a biblical issue. It is God's design. This is what He has put forward. Now, again, we've said this multiple times at FPC. Do not listen to what I say today, because what I say doesn't matter. But you do, do need to look at what God says and wrestle with what He lays out for men and for women. It is God who made male, and it is God who made female. God is the one who designed the entire program, and he made each sex unique and gave each sex a role to play. He designed them both. Can I hear an amen to that? It's his, well, there's three in the front row here. Okay, so are you with me on this? I I understand it is essential that you understand what God describes for the design for women, what God describes for the design for men at each individual sex. Otherwise, you might find yourself confused and competing instead of convinced and complimentary. That's where we need to be. It's kind of like the little girl who asked her daddy. You know, she goes sitting in his lap. She goes, Daddy, did, did God make you? And he goes, yes. And then she kind of looked in the mirror. And she looked at herself. and She said, well, well, did God make me? And he said, of course, dear. And she thought for a little bit, and she said to her dad, well, God sure seems to be doing better work lately, Daddy. So there you go. (laughs) Understand, for those who are single in our midst, this is one of the most difficult topics to deal with. In the early church, basically, women got married at 13. That was pretty much 14. You were kind of an old maid. So it's a different culture back then. They just went from their home to their marriage and established their own home. Today, we have this massive gap from 13 all the way to, you know, 21 to 31 to 40. We have this massive gap before this occurs in our culture, and it makes a state of tension for single gals. And it's very difficult. They need to wrestle with that, and I tried to do that as we kind of progress. We won't get to all of that today, but it's not easy to be a single woman who would like to be in a biblical relationship, which might lead to a marriage to an authentic man of Christ. I mean, if she waits, think about it, she could be labeled as indifferent. Uh, If she gets a low-paying part-time job so she can wait for her man to show up in two years, if he hasn't checked in, she's going to not only be poor, but she's going to hate her job. If she pursues a career, it'll be tough to give it up when she starts having kids. If she prepares for homemaking by reading all the wife and mother books, she's going to get frustrated. If she seeks to be content in her singleness, it won't stop her friends from asking her and her family from asking her five times a day, uh, when are you getting married? And if she pursues ministry, she might become so spiritual she'll intimidate all the men around her or she'll be so out of her circulation that no one will ever show up. It's tough to be a single gal. It's tough. Add to that dilemma that men in this room have unrealistic expectations of women. Come on, guys. Can we admit it? Unrealistic. I I saw a very funny article I'm going to read to you today. You might not find it funny. I find it hysterical. All right? I read the article. It's titled, The Ideal Wife That Every Man Expects. Here they are. Always beautiful and cheerful. Could have married movie stars but wanted only you. (laughs) Never sick. Just allergic to jewelry and expensive clothing. Insists that moving furniture by herself is good for her figure. She hates charge cards. Her favorite hobbies are mowing the lawn and shoveling snow. She thinks you have Einstein's brain but looks like Mr. America. (laughs) And her favorite expression is, what can I do for you, dear? Now, those are reasonable, right, guys? Come on. 
But what happens, the article goes on, what does he actually get? The article, being very sarcastic, says she speaks 140 words a minute with gusts up to 180. <laughs> she's a light eater. As soon as it gets light, she starts eating. Where there's smoke, there she is, cooking. Uh, she lets you know you only have two faults. Are you ready? Everything you say, everything you do. That's it. And if you get lost, just open your wallet, she'll find you. There you go. Okay. Now, I didn't write it. So what's a woman to do today? What is they to do today? Well, the answer to that is to embrace God's character qualities for women that are laid out in Titus chapter 2. Would you open your Bibles, if you're not there already, to Titus chapter 2. This is an incredibly significant passage because the book of Titus was written by Paul to Titus after his first imprisonment in Rome. And interesting, Paul left Titus on the island of Crete to set things in order. And one of the things that Titus was to set in order, Titus 1.5, set in order, was to instruct each of the various groups in the church as to their design and their function. Their design and their function. Interesting enough, what Paul has done for you at the same time is to describe the ultimate qualities of a godly woman. Now read verses 4 and 5 with me. It says that the older women are to train the younger women that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may be not be dishonored. And the main issue that Titus is dealing with on Crete here was that the Christians were having a hard time living out their faith. They were having a hard time putting their beliefs into behavior, so he gives them behavioral goals to pursue. He gives them clear instruction as to how they are to live. These are not just qualities, but they are to be qualities to be manifest. So Paul describes seven essential qualities of the young godly woman that are a part of her lifestyle. This is her lifestyle. And again, in the early church, it was a simple process of moving from your home to another home. Here, we have this difficulty, this, this age of tension, so to speak. But for you single women, these are the qualities you're to begin to live in order to manifest what God has designed for you and to prepare you for what is ahead for most of you. For single men, this is the woman to look for. What is it? Well, it is maritally, she is to love her husband. Uh, maternally, she's to love her children. Mentally, she's to be sensible. Morally, she's to be pure. Domestically, she's to be a worker at home. Socially, she's to be kind. Spiritually, she's to be subject to her own husband. This morning, I have to tell you, there are so many unanswered questions that I can't get to. This is just a taste. This is just an overview of what really needs to be a part of a study for you to dig in and to understand what really God designed for you. But it's essential that you know both the role of the man and the woman in today's society. You need to understand what God expects of you. You need to understand what God expects of the opposite sex. You must. If you don't, you will be lost in a wash of confusion. Are we not messed up today socially? Are we not? This is a disaster, and we need clarity from God's Word. And all I'm trying to bring you today is just a taste of clarity from God's word. So point number one, track with me. Here we go, ladies. Number one, maritally, she is to love her husband. Maritally, she is to love your husband. Now, men, if you give any elbows today, you're in big trouble, okay? So when Paul says to Titus that he knows on Crete there were basically two kinds of marriage, understand that those, those marriages were either arranged for political reasons 
Or the marriages on Crete were arranged for the procreation of male offspring. That was the culture of the first century. And others, neither had anything to do with love or romance. So understand, in light of that culture, even an exhortation for a Christian woman to love her husband was not an easy task. Not an easy task. In fact, Paul even takes a step further. Not only is the first duty of the Christian woman to love her husband, but her love is to be more than duty, more than sacrifice. It involves her whole life. When he says this here, he's using a phrase that is very significant. The Greek word for loving husbands here is not agape, but phileo. This is not the type of love which is totally unselfish giving without expecting anything in return. That's not what he's talking about here. Not here. The love addressed here in this context, are you ready, is the love that cherishes. It's the love that has a tender affection for another. Phileo is the love of relationship. He wants the older godly woman to train the younger woman to have comradeship with their husbands, share with their husbands, have a friend in their husband. God's goal for young women is to have a love for her husband that is more than just doing all that's required. The wife is, are you ready for this, ladies? You can write this down. This is a good English translation. Are you ready? Here it comes. Write it down. Four letters, L-I-K-E. Like her husband. I like him. I'm going to love that guy. I like him. I cherish him. I want to be friends with him. That wasn't easy in Titus' day, and it's not easy today. Now, it's hard for me to say this here because we have a lot of really, really, truly happy couples in our church. But when you look around our world today, do you see a lot of really, truly happy couples? It's really not true. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's very, very serious. So what are some ways that a young woman can love her future husband now? How can she do it now? I mean, how can you prepare for this? Be the kind of gal that develops a godly reputation. This is talking to singles now. 1 Timothy 5.10, widows were to have a reputation for good works. Proverbs 31.31, that incredible passage, her works praise her in the gate. She is known in the gates. You've heard me tell many times, I heard about my wife before I ever met her. People used to talk about her in hushed tones. <gasps> Jean Sharp. I mean, it was this incredible like godliness, this aura of Shekinah that floated above her. I, I, I had all these imaginations. And, and when I heard she was godly, I heard she was fun. I heard she was the star in all the skits in the junior high ministry, that she was gifted in ministry. She was super cute, and she was a servant. Boaz knew about Ruth. Long before he met her. So be that woman who is known, single gals, as a woman who fears God, who, who pursues Christ, who loves Christ. Be the kind of gal who also has a biblical lens towards young men. I'm not saying play hard to get, but don't be the gal who falls for the first guy who pays attention to you. Don't be that gal. Don't, don't partner off with a guy you can't marry or shouldn't marry. And if he's not a believer, not sound in doctrine, or not, write this down, proven. Never look at a guy who's not proven. Proven is faithfulness to Christ and his word over time. Proven is faithfulness to Christ and his word over time. Not a guy who just prayed to receive Christ, but a guy who's proven in Christ. Meaning faithful in ministry, loyal to his local church, accountable to older men, lives a life being spirit-filled serving, and a servant. Greatest among you is to be your servant. Don't date a guy just because he has puppy dog eyes. Or wears a blue jean coat. Or has the same name as your favorite childhood toy. 
Tonka, you know, or worse, Barbie, you know, whatever. College gals, I was a college pastor for four and a half years, used to tell me, he's got to be 6'2", blonde hair, and drive a Porsche. And I lived long enough to see what they ended up with, 5'1", bald, and drives a scooter, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Make certain he's proven. Proven. That, that's the man, are you ready, who will be easy to like. That's the man who will be easy to like. And Paul reminds Titus to motivate older women to train the younger women to like their husbands. What's not being said here, which always bothers me and I don't have a good answer for, is why is it and what is it about men that requires an older godly woman to train the younger wife to like them? Just think about that for a while. Don't believe the lie. The lie of Christian singles is this. When you walk down the aisle and you say, I do, you're automatically, mystically prepared for marriage. That is a lie. You must get ready now as a single before premarital. Even when married, this verse tells young wives they need to be discipled by the older godly women in order to like their husbands. How much more do singles need discipleship now in order to make marriage work later? We need that. Build relationships with older godly saints, singles. Get adopted by that biblically sound older couple. Start asking questions. Start taking the steps to be prepared. It doesn't automatically happen when you walk down the aisle. And for you men, the right woman for you is the Christ-like woman. God says the best wife is the woman of character, not the charmer, nor the natural beauty. Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. She shall be praised. Stop looking merely external, merely external. She should be attractive to you, yes. But the ultimate woman is the authentic woman of God. The ultimate woman is the authentic woman of God. That's the gal who loves Christ more than you. That's a woman you can trust and you can respect. And by the way, love is based on who you trust and who you respect. So older godly women train the younger women to like their husbands. Number two in your outline, mater maternally, she is to love her children. Love her children. Next to loving her husband, the godly woman must love her kids, which to most future mothers seems pretty easy. I mean, think about it. How can anybody not like kids? They're so entertaining, right? My favorite story is about little Tommy. Told his teacher every day about his soon-to-be-born younger brother. And then at home, mom let Tommy feel the baby kicking in her womb. Tommy's eyes bugged out. You know, his jaw dropped open in surprise. But suddenly, at school, Tommy was no longer talking about his coming baby brother or sister. And basically, when the, when the teacher asked him two weeks later what happened to the yet-to-be-born brother, Tommy burst into tears and said, I think mommy ate it! <laughs> okay, I thought that was a lot more funny than, than you did. But Kids are fun. Grandkids are even better. Yet nothing could be more difficult than loving children. Nothing can be more difficult than loving children. After all four kids wake up in a bad mood, eat all the cookies but one, only talk in a whine, only scream their questions, refuse to eat any meal without complaint, stick the remaining cookie in the CD player, break a window, torture the neighbor's cat, not a bad thing, eat the houseplants, and write on the wall in permanent marker all before 10 a.m. in the morning. Can you imagine that? That's regular stuff for some of the women in our church. 
That's why Paul doesn't command wives to love their kids, but he exhorts the young women to be trained by the older women to learn how to love her children. Now, the root for love here, again, is the same as it was for love husbands. It's phileo. This is the love of children that cares for children, that likes children, that cherishes and enjoys them. Because raising kids in the first century was a mother's duty by marriage arrangement. Children were often burdens, and they were also mother, additional mouths to feed. And therefore, in Roman society, this is true, Romans people in general often lacked natural affection. Weak and deformed and female offspring other than the firstborn female were often killed rather than cared for. Our circumstances are similar with the sin of abortion and a society that views the function of a mother as second best to a career pushing kids off to daycare. And yet, according to God's word, being a full-time mother is the highest privilege and a mother's greatest potential influence for the kingdom of God. The Bible clearly teaches in 2 Timothy 2.15, it illustrates a mother's importance. After discussing the design of women in public worship, Paul says this, quote, women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Paul says one of women's greatest impact for the kingdom of God will be her influence in the lives of her children. That's why Paul tells Timothy motherhood would be her salvation. She'd be saved or preserved. Her role is to impact the kingdom from the bottom up through her children. Now why is it, and you know the answer to this, when the camera flips to the 300 pound lineman and he gets a close up, what does he say to the camera? Hi mom, why? Because mom is the one who shaped him. Learn now and how to be a mom through discipleship with older godly women and through your discipleship with other believers. Understand it is important that you would know that parenting is discipleship and discipleship is parenting. Now, if you want a definition, here it is. Discipleship, intentional relationships for the purpose of coming to Christ and becoming like Christ in the context of the church. Intentional relationships, intentional for the purpose of coming to Christ or becoming like Christ in the context of the church. How do you know someone you're interested in will be a great parent? They're discipling. They pour themselves into others. They, they disciple others now. They are discipled. Discipling is parenting. Learn how to disciple others now. Number three in your outline. The next goal of women is to be mentally sensible. Mentally sensible. That means that God expects young women to be three things. Are you ready? Number one, she's supposed to be in her right mind. The word sensible means be in your right mind. She's not one French fry short of a happy meal. You know what I mean? She, she has mental stability and it's never questioned. Number two, sensibility means she rarely panics. Rarely panics. She doesn't lose control over her emotions. Number three, sensibility means a woman exercises common sense using her mind to make biblical decisions, basically to be sensible, is to be a thinking woman. A thinking woman. Now, the quality of sensibility, you heard that last week, and this is the same, is basically the most repeated quality in the book of Titus. So turn, if you would, to Titus chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Not only was the Christian community on Crete not living out their doctrine, but the entire Cretan society battled with being sensible. So Paul describes it in chapter 1, 12 to 14. He says these words, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, 
said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. That's an incredible statement. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and the commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Now, the Cretans were always liars. They had no control over their speech, and they were deceptive. They were evil beasts, wild and unsensible behavior. They were lazy gluttons. That word literally means lazy bellies. Lazy bellies. They had no control over their appetites and desires. They pay attention to myths. They're tickling their ears with men's opinions instead of spiritually directing their lives by obediently following the word of God. Now, just like our society teaches that it can't be wrong because it feels so right. Anybody with me? Uh, Just do it. Try it. You like it. I'm loving it. Our culture lacks sensibility too. Would you agree? And that's why Paul makes this the number one quality, not the exhortation, but quality when he writes Titus. In the letter, he commands elders to be sensible, older men, older women to be sensible, younger men, younger women to be sensible, all of Cretans to be sensible and develop and exercise sensibility because it's so essential to life. It's not a very attractive quality, but it's a very essential quality. And the sensible woman will learn to discipline her thinking over her feelings. Listen, Christian, men and women, learn to discipline your feelings. No, feelings are good. God gave us feelings. That's fine. Don't live by them. Live by the truth. Live by the truth of God's word. What does he say in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, concerning your mind and your thinking? Brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right and pure, lovely, whatever is good repute, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, what? Dwell on those things. Control and train your thinking. Now, the sensible discipline their thoughts. The sensible believer also practices biblical good stewardship. Good stewardship. In our materialistic society, they're good stewards with their money. They budget their money. They're not abusing their credit cards. They're controlling their spending. They're avoiding debt. You say, what about singles? What about singles in their relationships? Well, sensible dating couples are careful. Are you ready? Write these down. Ready? You're careful about what promises you make. You're careful about what gifts you give. You're careful about how much time you spend together. You don't talk about marriage on the third date. Okay? You don't knit him a motorcycle, which is ridiculous. I understand. You don't give her a diamond ring just because she's nice. You don't say, I love you, until you're ready to back it up with your entire life. Don't spend more time together than a married couple does. Use your mind, think sensibly, learn to live sensibly from older saints. Again, this is just a taste. There's more to learn about this issue. But number four in your outline, be morally pure. Morally pure. That's what he says next in Titus chapter 2. In Titus, the word pure here literally means to be chaste, to be sexually pure. For the first century wife, Christianity brought freedom It did, and so a believing woman was no longer a slave locked up in her house like she was previously, but now she's free to minister from house to house. She could do that, but along with that freedom, she was expected to live with purity. Now, that was a problem on Crete. That's a problem today. Now, don't misread purity. For the believer, there are three big things that actually produce purity that we don't think about. So here they are. 
in the scripture three big things that cultivate purity. And purity is not accomplished first by what you don't do, but it's first by keeping your heart focused on Christ. Purity begins by keeping your heart focused on Christ, anticipating his soon return. First John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. We shall see him just as he is, and everyone who has this hope fixed upon him, listen, purifies himself just as he is pure. That's where purity starts, focusing on Christ. Secondly, purity starts by remaining intimate with the only pure one there. And then secondly, purity is not first developed by keeping external rules, but purity, write this down, starts within. Starts within you, in your inner person. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. In his heart. According to Christ, purity is an inner attitude that issues forth in holy behavior. It's an inner attitude that issues forth in holy behavior. You know, the issue with purity is not how far you can go physically before you sin, but how intimate you are with Christ and how disciplined you are with your inner thoughts and your inner desires. That's one and two. And finally, third, purity is also maintained by sensible fleeing. Fleeing. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, flee youthful lust. Do you know what the word flee means? The word flee means run in terror. Run in terror. 1 Corinthians 6.18, run in terror from immorality. Run Strong, young desires demand some running away. A biblical response to intense drives is to get away. Now, how do you do that? How do you flee sensibly? Well, all P's. Are you ready? Write them down. Here they go. They're going to go really fast. Number one, flee by preparing for situations. Preparing in advance for situations. Listen, Joseph knew that Potiphar's wife was going to go after him. He knew. He prepared. He knew. He was prepared to escape a tempting situation in advance. Ladies, be prepared. Men, be prepared to escape a tempting situation in advance. No one is above strong desire. So determine what you will do now. Decide now what you will do. Now, this is not talking to Marys. This is talking to singles. Number two, flee by planning your environment. Planning your environment. Listen, here you go. This is practical. Ready? Stay public. Stay public. Stay in the light, not in the dark. Stay active. Don't stay up late. You know, call it quits at... No, I don't want to say a time. <laughs> Listen, don't go to the beach to watch the submarine races. That's foolish. It's foolish. Flee by planning your environment. Number three, flee by picking your people. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says bad company corrupts good morals, and it has a very specific application there, but there's the principle is true. Don't go out with a flirt. You know that the, the Bible teaches the only person who is a flirt is a harlot. That's the only person. Don't bind yourself to anybody who will corrupt your character or your purity. Don't bind yourself to anybody who's going to corrupt your character or your purity. Number four, flee by pondering your appearance. Clothing choices make statements. Clothing statements. <laughs> choices make statements. One more time. Clothing choices make statements. The question is, what are you saying, and what is the potential message received? Talk to an older godly woman about your modesty. Number five, flee by pouncing on your thoughts. Turn from evil thoughts and concentrate on healthy thoughts. Again, Philippians 4.8. 
Concentrate on the true, the pure, the lovely, excellent, worthy things. Choose what you think about. Determine that. Number six, flee by paralyzing your glances. Job 31 verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. I made a promise with my eyeballs. What did you promise, Job? How then could I gaze at a virgin? The second long look. Make a covenant with your eyes not to take the long look at anyone or look lustfully at anything. Don't take the second long look. Turn away. Change your mental channel. Purity is focusing on Christ. It comes with working on your thought and your inner man, inner person, and aggressively fleeing lust. Aggressively. Number five, domestically to be a worker at home. Domestically to be a worker at home. The Bible's clear. The Greek word here, worker at home, you see it there. Look at it, Titus 2. Look at it very carefully. It says worker at home. It comes from two words. Are you ready? Write these down. This is significant. Two Greek words. Worker at home, it comes from to work at home. There you go. That's what it means. 1 Timothy 5.14 says the same thing. Paul's idea, I want the younger widows. Okay, their you know, man went out to war. He got killed. She's a younger widow. I want them to get married. I want them to bear children. I want them to keep house and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. That word keep is actually the word for despot. It's talking about warlords. She's the warlord of the house. Guys, how would you like it when your wife come to your office and throw her clothes all over the place and mess up everything? That's what you do when you go home and you mess up her warlorded house, okay? Understand, that's what she's called it. Now, this is where, you know, most of the people are going to want to leave um, and the feminists are going to really have a really hard time because God's truth is an offense to today's culture. It is a massive offense. And there's more to talk about and the implications of this that I cannot address in a single message. But if you are in any way a feminist, this is going to step on your air hose. <laughs> okay? The world pictures being a worker at home as a less than best option, confining of potential, a boring, frustrating choice, a decision made only by the less intelligent. That's what our world says about being a worker at home. God is the opposite. God pictures a worker at home as a woman's busiest and best priority where she fills out her commitment to be a godly wife and a godly mother. With all the new freedom that a born-again believer, the New Testament woman was not to go about from house to house being a busybody or, and the second claim and exhortation was don't remain at home being lazy. She's to work when she's home and to do her work at home. And Paul's telling Titus the young wife's goal is to make her home a place of contentment, intelligence, and peace. She's to manage the affairs of her household in such a way that her husband and children are blessed in countless ways. That's Proverbs 31. Her work of housekeeping, picking up, cleaning, budgeting, hospitality, shopping, cooking, washing, investing, nursing, chauffeuring, helping the poor, and caring for her family are viewed by God as spiritual ministry. In her lifetime, the average housewife will spend 99.6 hours a week working around the house. 99, that's almost 100 hours a week. Her life, in her life, if she lives a long life, she will cook 35,000 meals. She will make between 10 and 40,000 beds. She will vacuum a rug a mile long and a tenth of a mile wide. She will clean 7,000 plumbing fixtures, all spiritual work. Why? 
because she's a worker at home. She keeps her home a place where Christ is honored and proclaimed. So what is the challenge? Budget your money now. Budget your time now. Limit your shopping now. Learn to cook now. Understand, get ready now by cleaning your dorm room. By cleaning your room. Organize your desk. Clean your car so you can see the floor mats. So you can arrange your truck. Listen, the only time you can act like a princess is if you are one. Otherwise, as a Christian, the greatest among you will be the... Oh, no, no. The greatest among you will be the what? The servant. The servant. God has called us to be servants, men and women. Cultivate the skills of managing a home now through godly examples, through older women discipleship. Clarify the direction. As a single woman, God commands you as a single man as well. 1 Corinthians 7.35, that's your job description as a single. Here it is. Ready? Secure undistracted devotion to Christ. It's the only time in your life you'll have undistracted devotion to Christ. You don't get it as a married couple. That's only for singles. Undistracted devotion to Christ. Drink up this time as a single for his glory. Drink it up. Minister unhindered by family. Get an education. Even work in a career by God's strength. But if you're not a celibate, prepare for marriage. Prepare for motherhood. Prepare for running a household. And get trained to be a worker at home. If you're not a celibate, then get ready. Number six, socially, she's to be kind. She's to be kind. A godly young woman is not only Christ-like in character, but she pursues doing good deeds motivated by mercy and grace for her family, the saints and the ain'ts. Anybody. She's kind. Like Dorcas in Acts chapter 9, the kind woman is known for all the gifts that she has given away to the needy. This was a major weakness on Crete. And believers were not living out their faith. So six times in this, again, small three-chapter letter of Titus, Paul charges Titus to pursue good deeds. Now look at them really quickly. False believers in chapter 1, verse 16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. Their faith didn't work. In chapter 2, verse 7, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. In chapter 2, verse 14, zealous for good deeds. In chapter 3, verse 5, saved us on the, not on the basis of deeds. Chapter 3, verse 8, those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. And then he says it again in 3.14, let our people also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. Listen, since our Lord was kind, we're to be kind. His followers are to be kind. I can only illustrate this by the kindest person I know. The only, the only way that I'm going to ever drink coffee is if I can destroy the taste. Uh, is anybody with me on that? Okay, some of you are little, little coffee aficionados, and you love coffee, and I, oh, God bless you. And I married one of those people. She understands coffee. She used to be a coffee snob. So here we are at an airport at 5 a.m. not long ago. We haven't slept, and she's trying to buy a cup of coffee to at least get three brain cells in her brain working. <laughs> She's wiped out, and a wiped-out stewardess who's been on an all-nighter is just ahead of her trying to buy her cup of Christian cocktail when the barista says this, cash only. And the stewardess doesn't have a dime on her. So what's my gift of giving bride do? Takes her last five bucks, pays for her cup of liquid life. Why? Because she's kind and probably a fellow addict, but uh, she's kind. <laughs> Young godly women 
are to be kind, filled with good deeds, motivated by mercy, motivated by grace because God's given us so much in His Son. Actions that put Christ on display, kindness strengthens marriage, it strengthens parenting, it strengthens our witnessing. And then number seven, spiritually subject to her own husband. Subject, Paul adds that the word of God may not be dishonored. That the word of God may not be dishonored. Now the world hears subjection and and shouts doormat. The world hears that and shouts doormat. The word says if there's no subjection, then the Bible shouts dishonor. The world views being subject as hateful. The word views being subject as holy. Verse 5 says, being subject, look at it, to your own husbands. A godly wife literally ranks herself under like a private does for his sergeant. Not to every man, but her own husband. So that the word of God and the Lord's reputation, he says here, is not injured, it's not slandered, It's not insulted. Now, how could God's reputation be insulted by a non-submissive wife? Are you ready? Christ designed men and Christ designed women. Christ created marriage, and in it, he designed authority and submission. Why? Not because of culture, not primarily because of the created order, but because it reflects his nature. The triune God consists of three equal persons, each person unique, yet also one. So after the incarnation, Christ, the King of the universe, our Lord, our Master, our Savior, Christ, after the incarnation, submitted to the Father. Marriage is made up of a man and a woman who are one. They're supposed to be one. They're supposed to be one heart, one mind. Each person is unique. And in God's design, reflecting his character, a wife submits to her own husband. Paul confronts women who are not functioning by God's design in Corinth, and he begins by making this very radical statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Look at it. He says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. Christ is the authority of every man. The man is the head of a woman, and watch this, God is the head of of Christ. Now, that's not heresy, friends. Just like authority submission is found in the Godhead, so God designed husbands and wives to reflect the Trinity. We are putting God and the triune God on display. Submission does not mean that men are better or smarter at all. But like a great play with two great actors of equal strength, we play different parts. Like a doubles team in tennis, we each have our side of the court to manage. Like a pilot and a co-pilot, each with specific responsibilities. God is the one who designed authority submission for a wife. Not to put her under her husband's authority is basically then to attack the character and wisdom of God. To not do that is an insult to God. I didn't say that. Titus says it. It's here. Paul writes it. When a woman submits herself, she is actively expressing trust in God and in her husband. She's laying out an expectation for him to fill out his role and actually priming the pump for him to be the leader and the head that he needs to be. What about men? Their design is equally different. 
and equally difficult. Young men must become responsible. Young men must reject passivity, the indicative of our day. Young men must lead courageously. Young men must live for God's approval and not man's. Both men and women, are you ready? Must be born again. We can't do this outside of God's strength and outside of God's work in our hearts. They must be filled with the Spirit, even to live this out as a believer. Walk according to the Scripture. And are you ready? The number one thing, write it down. Please write it down. Deny yourself. The issue with roles for men and the issue with roles for women is deny yourself and live for the other. In order to live out God's design, you cannot do this in your own strength. Ladies, will you live by the word or will you live by the world? Are you delighting in God's design or are you disliking God's design? Are you pursuing God's will or are you pursuing your will? You will have to paddle against a massively strong riptide of this world in order to thrive by living by God's word. It is a massive pull against you. Don't wait. Take steps now. Pursue discipleship, ladies, with that crew of older godly women. It's not one woman, it's plural, women. Pursue that relationship. Men, pursue older godly men. Ask questions. Learn what it means to be a husband. Single men have the weirdest views about what submission is, too. Uh, okay, I'm getting off my notes. All right, here we go. Get discipled. Ask the questions. Practice the skills. Godliness in marriage does not magically occur the moment you say, I do. Marriage does not have to be the three-ring circus. You've heard me say this before, right? Three rings. Starts with the engagement ring, then goes to the wedding ring, and then ends up with the suffer ring. Okay, it doesn't have to. God's design for you is for his glory, and it's for your good. And listen, friends, listen. It is for your joy. Your joy. You really want to know a godly couple that are really, really happy and why they're so joyful? They're just living out the best they can God's design. And listen, it's, it's still work. It's still hard. But it's worth every moment of the rest of your life. Let's pray, shall we? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we know that no one can live these truths out unless they are born again, unless they're genuinely saved. We pray, Father, that if they come to realize that they're totally out of step, that they have no desire to live your truth, no desire to pursue your pattern, no desire to come under the authority of the Word of God, Father, then convict their heart that they need you. They need you to change their heart, to transform them, to make them into the man or the woman that you designed them to be. Father, only you can do that. And Father, help them to see their sin as horrific, that will cast them into eternal torment forever, that they need their sin to fall on Christ and his righteousness to cover them and for him to regenerate them so they could want to follow you. And Father, for the rest of us, give us the courage to be bold. Give us the courage to pursue your plan. There are a lot of struggles here today. There's a lot of issues that need to be resolved. There's a lot of things that need to be discussed. Nothing happens in a moment. Father, help them in the process of pursuing these goals. Pursuing them. Not arriving at them, but pursuing them our whole life. And Father, we'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. Only you can pull it off. 
We love you, we thank you, we praise you that even though you are radically different than our society, that your ways are the best ways, the true ways. And we want to honor and glorify you. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast. And a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.